Stampede. Garner is in number 139, recorded 5 15 2022. I don't dislike politicians. I just don't like what they do or why. Living most of my life on my family farm just outside of Chicago, I learned a lot about politics. More specifically, information about one of the kingpins of the Democratic Party during the 1950s through the 70s. I have mixed emotions about Richard J. Daly, but as I've grown older, I recognize the boss of Chicago was a great mayor. And if there's any word to describe who and what he was, it's safe to say he was a builder, a man who could build a city he loved and the people who inhabited it. You could never escape Daly's Irish background, especially when he marched in St. Patty's Day Parade or ordered the Chicago River dyed green 
And after I once traveled through Ireland, I developed a deep appreciation for the values he was raised with. I almost bought a house in Ireland, but then I almost bought a house in southern France and a house in New Zealand. However, I never did. And I confess, when I was growing up, Chicago was a city where I looked with pride because it was a place that was working. That's not to say, since I was strongly against the Vietnam War and supported attempts to disrupt the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago, I didn't appreciate daily ordering police to shoot to kill protesters. No, those were hot days filled with a lot of passion. But there is something else that makes me think about Chicago's politics. Old school in-your-face patronage. That's how Daly got things done. He rewarded jobs to people who were loyal to him and the Democratic Party. And toughness wasn't a word to describe how things got done. It was old-fashioned, bare-knuckle rule. He stayed in power in Chicago for more than 20 years, and there are still people that kiss the ground he walked on for the jobs he gave them working in the government of Chicago.
there's a close relationship to political patronage, and it's called feather bedding, or make work projects. I like talking about Daly because of all the faults he had, even all the corruption that existed. He was still a builder, a builder for the city of Chicago. I'm not entirely sure I can say that about most politicians today. I see politicians, particularly ones who have held office for 40-odd years, a somewhat different breed. You see, Daly gave jobs to people who were loyal to him and the Democratic Party because he needed them to work to build a city he loved. Today, a person who claims he has 40 years' experience being elected by the people is someone who cares more about the outcome of his vote on an issue if it affects his career. No, those people who have retained power for 40 years do so for themselves without real concern for the results of the votes they cast in Congress, unless a public relations poll shows a positive furtherance to their career. You see, to stay in office for 40 years, you don't really give a damn about the vote you take on an issue because you bend with the wind. But there's also something else about a politician staying in office for 40 years. You have to be ambitious. And to keep your ambition alive, you build a network of feather building. If you're a senator for 30 years in a state like Delaware, you make sure the people who get jobs working for the state get their jobs from a network of connections which come from a senator or representative. You see, if you build a system of backslapping and owe your job to professional politicians, then you're part of the machine that keeps someone in power. That politician really doesn't care about the people of the state they're elected to represent. They're only concerned about getting re-elected, and that's what you call blind ambition. There's hardly a successful politician today who isn't for corporate money and patronage.
something else about politicians I don't like. When things aren't going right for them, they first claim it wasn't their fault. Now, Richard J. Daley, as far as I can remember, when he or his administration while running the city of Chicago never claimed it was his fault if a local news reporter pointed out something was wrong. And there are two reasons for that. First, Daly wasn't afraid if he was accused of doing something wrong, because if there was something that wasn't right, he'd fix it, and he had the power to do it. And second, if there was an alderman accused of some corruption, well, the boss would do one of two things. First, he'd be unwilling to do anything against a councilman if he was a loyal worker for the party. And if there were accusations of payoffs or kickbacks to get zoning changed for the construction of a building, Daly would simply wait for proof in a court of law. And second, Daly couldn't be accused of any crime because, quite honestly, he believed it was a sin to break the law. And if the alderman was found guilty, the political machine would simply replace him with another loyal member of the party. But the other most amazing thing about Daly was if he had to talk about a controversial issue, no one, and I mean no one, could understand what he had just said. Daly couldn't put two words together that made any sense. But the voting public knew whatever was wrong, it wasn't Daly's fault. Now, the other thing about most politicians, if accused of wrongdoing, they always end up saying it was someone else's fault. It was always the last administration or the different party that did it. But the thing about Richard J. Daley was he never blamed someone else for the mistakes. He wouldn't do that because he would man up and get it corrected. And for that, you had to respect him. I guess I don't like politicians because they won't admit to doing anything wrong.
I'm not an investigative reporter. However, I am someone who is sensitive about being manipulated by propagandists and politicians. So when President Biden or Nancy Pelosi or most television news anchors on cable networks accuse the president of the Russian Federation of being an autocrat or a dictator, or worse, I get annoyed. I don't apologize for Putin invading Ukraine, and I'm certainly not knowledgeable about how the Russian people vote for their political leaders. I do believe supplying $40 billion worth of American weapons won't resolve the conflict in Ukraine, and more importantly, may prolong it. The American people should be told why Putin decided to send troops into Ukraine, and also why he did so in 2014 to Crimea. We deserve an explanation, a rational explanation, for why he did it, besides calling him names. The Russian people may actually believe he had good reason to do it. And to use a hypothetical example, if the Panama Canal was ever threatened by a foreign force and there were a large number of American workers who were faced with the prospect of becoming a part of the country that now controlled the canal, I'm sure an American president would send troops to the canal. Putin may believe Ukraine with a large number of Russian-speaking people and long-term contracts to supply fuel to Eastern Europe transiting Ukraine by Russian pipelines would think he was justified in sending in troops. But the American people are fed propaganda about this conflict by calling Putin names like a butcher. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. America has supported the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and sent billions of weapons to prosecute the war in Yemen. And as far as I know, You don't hear an American senator calling the Saudi leader a dictator, an autocrat, or worse. No, it's about time Americans are told why we should arm the Ukrainians, because many of them are in favor of Russian control.
it's not just politicians and their propagandists that I have trouble with. It's the people that are appointed to head intelligence gathering information for the protection of our government. I mean, the people who head the CIA with 20,000 employees collecting information aren't accountable for anything they do. While John Brennan was running the agency, he authorized drone strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Afghanistan, and other foreign countries. Brennan claimed that since America had developed precise capabilities with drone attacks, not a single collateral damage resulted. In other words, when we used drones to attack combatants in foreign countries, we never killed innocent civilians. That turned out to be a lie, and it was proven that dozens of innocent people and children were killed conducting those drone attacks. Brennan also came under attack for defending the CIA methods of interrogation and waterboarding. The worst thing about the CIA, or the National Security Agency, is they operate in nearly complete secrecy. They do what they want, and they aren't held accountable for anything. The National Security Agency was founded by Harry Truman in 1952. It remained unknown, non-existent, and completely in secrecy until 1975, nearly 23 years later, when it was revealed it actually existed. Today, it has over 32,000 employees, and even if in 1975, it had only a quarter of that number of employees. How do you hide 8,000 people employed by the federal government to investigate American citizens? What's worse, when John Clapper, the director of the National Security Agency, was asked if the agency spied on Americans, he couldn't admit that, yes, the National Security Agency listened into people's private conversations, broke into residences to place listening devices, tracked the whereabouts of citizens. The facts are, our government doesn't trust the people in this country, and maybe rightfully so, if there's good reason for them being removed.
This week on Garnerisms, you first heard the music by Harry Gregson Williams by, from the movie Man on Fire, a cut from the end. Then more by Gregson, Making Water, from the movie Martian, followed by a piece from Philip Glass, Walking to School, from the movie Tales of the Loop. Then another cut from Grigson's The End. And then from John Williams' Music from the Minority Report. And finally, Grigson's composition Mars from the movie Martian. Stampede, written and performed by Edward Garner in Morro Bay and Paso Robles, California.